Well, welcome everybody. Page 22 in your notebooks. And everybody have a notebook? If you need one, we've got some. Page 22. I ordered uh, a few copies of a Reformation book that is in the Resource Center behind me. And it's titled, Why We're Protestant, An Introduction to the Five Solas of the, the Reformation. So it's uh, not, not terribly long, uh, fairly easy, easy to read, well-written, accurate. So $10 a copy. So if you're interested in that, those are available in the uh, Resource Center. Today's our seventh session. And we have five after this. We're over halfway done. We have five left. There are six Wednesdays left before the end of the semester, but one of those we have off in a few weeks, and that's the night before Thanksgiving. We don't meet. Nothing meets that night. So we have, uh, counting tonight, six sessions uh, left. We've seen so far that with the exception of some protesters, people like John Wycliffe, John Huss, William Tyndale, the Waldensians, and others, the dominant church had become thoroughly corrupt in the Middle Ages. We've seen that the power of the Pope had increased such that he could humble kings by use of the interdict. You may remember what that is. We talked about it last week, but it was the imposition by the Pope on an entire country of... a his authority, saying that the priests could not uh, perform Mass for the people. And given the Roman Catholic system requiring that Mass covers your sins since the last time you engaged in Mass, then that put souls in eternal peril. So uh, the Pope was able to cause kings to knuckle under his authority, by virtue of, of doing that. And uh, one king we saw last week, King Henry, uh, stood in the snow three successive days waiting for the Pope to finally relent and let him have an audience and then finally uh, released him from the interdict. The power of church over souls extended to issuing indulgences. Indulgences, uh, that's a from a Latin term, indulgentia, which means a, a permit. It was a piece of paper that was a permit. It was given to an individual who paid money, or usually money, uh, or performed certain works to earn the permit, to earn the indulgence. And the indulgence then would cut off uh, years in purgatory for someone who's already departed or in some cases for the person who actually purchased the indulgence. There was something called a plenary indulgence, which means that you would have no punishment in purgatory if you had a plenary full uh, indulgence. So the power of the church over souls extended to issuing things like indulgences, and those were used to finance the building of the palatial St. Peter's in Rome. To this day, when you see the Pope, come out and you see on CNN or something that he's having mass at Easter and you've got all those people out there and he's out at St. Peter's Basilica. That's part of the whole St. Peter's complex that was built with money 
from the sale of indulgences at, at this time. It costs hundreds of millions of dollars to build that in today's terms. Hundreds of millions. It's been estimated variously, but in today's dollars, it's at least hundreds of, of millions of dollars. Financed primarily by the sale of indulgences. And one of the most successful indulgence salesmen was a man named Johann Tetzel. And Tetzel came to Wittenberg, Germany, where Martin Luther was. And he began to uh, sell indulgences in Luther's town. And Tetzel even had a little jingle. He would, When he was selling, he would say, when a coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. As he, as he sold these things. So, the corruption of the church, the bondage of souls uh, by the church, and his study of scripture... And his then coming to the belief that the scriptures teach sola fide, Latin for by faith alone, all of that prompted Luther to nail his 95 grievances, his 95 theses, to the church door in Wittenberg uh, to prompt a debate. And those 95 theses were primarily about indulgences and all the things that were attached, all the things attached to that. So he nailed that to the church door and started thereby what we call the Protestant Reformation. He did that exactly 500 years ago yesterday. So we call it Halloween. It's really Reformation Day. And October 31st of 1517, 500th anniversary was just yesterday. So on page 22 in your notes, section 4, Modern Church History Now, from 1517, when the Protestant Reformation began, and we're going to look at the Reformation and what's called the Counter-Reformation. And I say there on page 22, Luther's grievances with the Roman Church struck a nerve throughout Europe, particularly where battles had historically been fought with the Church, the Reformation spread. Where battles had historically been fought with the Church, the Reformation had fertile ground to spread. Now, those battles had been fought in places like Germany. Remember, Henry, the guy who stood out in the snow, was from Germany. And also England, France. These were places where the popes had humiliated leaders. Over time, they were nursing resentments over a long period of time about the control of the church. And now Luther comes along, and with the aid of the printing press is able to spread his ideas that the church does not have this kind of control over you. That each person can go to God himself. He doesn't have to go to a priest. That Christ died once for all, and he's not re-crucified every week when you observe the, the Mass. These are revolutionary ideas that caught fire. But they caught fire, especially in these places where the church had, had mistreated uh, kings and the king's subjects. So you have the German Reformation, page 22, started by, of course, Martin Luther. We saw last week a video about Luther's early life and what led him up to the nailing of the 95 Theses. We're going to see in just a few minutes, another 15 minutes uh, after that, another 15-minute video. But I say here, after igniting the Reformation with the 95 Theses, Luther did not stop. 
His writings further widened the chasm between the Roman Catholic Church and the Protestants. And his writings were voluminous, but here are some of the most important. One called the Address to the German Nobility, it attacked the Roman Catholic hierarchy. So he addresses this to the Roman magistrates, the Roman nobility. And he's making the case in this pamphlet that the Roman Catholic Church has usurped its authority. And it's usurped its authority, and it exercises that authority over you. So Luther was fairly shrewd in doing this. He was getting he was getting the magistrates in Germany worked up uh, against the, the Roman Catholic Church. It didn't take a whole lot. They were already somewhat ticked for reasons I gave, but he was, uh, he was taking advantage of that. He wrote another book called The Babylonian Captivity of the Church. And in that pamphlet, he attacked the Roman Catholic sacramental system. So he's getting to the heart of Roman Catholic, Roman Catholic theology when he attacks the sacraments of the, of the church. In particular, he's attacking the Mass as a, a re-crucifixion of Christ every time, it's, every time it's performed. We'll have occasion to talk about the Mass some more, uh, probably not tonight, but uh, next week or the week after that. And then Luther did a translation of the Bible into German. Since not only did he believe in sola fide, that is, by faith alone, but he also believed in sola scriptura, which is the scriptures alone, are the final authority, then he believed that each person should have the Bible in their own language. So he translated from Latin into German. Remember, the Bible that people had during the Middle Ages was a Latin Bible, and most people didn't have it. And if they did have it, it was in Latin. So he translates it into German. Were most people illiterate all through the Dark Ages, though, and that's how the church, you know, changed whatever they wanted? So that, that was the other thing. Most people didn't have a copy of the Bible. You didn't have the printing press to produce these Bibles. And then even if you were producing them, most people couldn't read anyway. Uh, I, I'm not going into it in this class just because we don't have time. But you could spend a lot of time uh, looking at the results of the Reformation on society as a whole. And one of those, one of the results was the education of, of people. In fact, the guy, the next guy that I have listed here in the middle of page 22, Philip Melanchthon, uh, he started the school system in Germany. He was an associate, the close associate of Luther. He was a, a theologian, the first theologian of the Reformation. He systematized Luther's Luther's teaching. So he started the school system in the entire country of Germany. Why? Because people need to be educated, they need to be able to read in order to have access to God's word. So now a new light has dawned with the Reformation. In fact, uh, the motto of the Reformation was this, uh, after darkness, light. After the darkness of the Middle Ages, light has now appeared. And that light is because now the scriptures are going to be the final authority. Further, the scriptures are going to be translated into the language of the people, made available to the people, and people are going to be able to read it because they're going to be taught to read. Melanchthon uh, put together in 1530, so just 13 years after the beginning of the Reformation, something called the Augsburg Confession, 
And that was a statement of faith for, for Lutherans. And it is still a statement of faith for Lutherans to this day. It's used in, if you look a little bit further down, number two there, the Book of Concord. That, in 1580, was a larger corpus, a larger body of Lutheran doctrine that included historic creeds of the faith, but also the Augsburg Confession. And to this day is used in Lutheranism as their standard for doctrine. So in the German Reformation, you have Luther who started it, you have Melanchthon who was his companion, a brilliant man uh, who and theologian, and then you have the development of Lutheranism. And within Lutheranism, there was a view of church and state relations. Earl Cairns, in his book, Christianity Through the Century, says this, events in Germany forced Luther into, posi- into a position where he had to develop church organization and liturgy suitable for his followers. Let me just stop there. So you think about being Martin Luther. You've started this thing. You have people coming out of the only church they've ever known. And now you've got to organize this thing. So what are you going to do with it? And Melanchthon helped him to do that helped him to organize it doctrinally, but he had to organize it organizationally as well. How are people going to be ordained as ministers in the in the church? Uh, what are the churches what are the churches going to gonna look like? You know, we're not we're not gonna have all the icons and we're not gonna, you know uh, or are we? There's a debate about there was a debate about that. But he had to do all of that. What's our worship service going to look like? That's what liturgy is. What's our worship service going to look like? If it's not going to be centered around the Mass, how's it going to go? So Luther and Melanchthon had to put all that together for the fledgling Protestant church. At the Diet of Speer in the year 1526, the principle that the ruler should choose the religion of his state was adopted. Now notice that. So no separation of church and state. Even in Protestant Germany, we know there wasn't separation of church and state in the Holy Roman Empire. We've already seen that. But now, even as Protestantism comes into being, there isn't separation of church and state as well. We'll see that again. We'll see that in other countries and some of the effects that it had. For now, what I want to do is show you 15 minutes of this continuing uh, DVD about... uh, what uh, continued to happen in Luther's life and ministry, and then we'll come back to the notes. Pastor, I'm not sure how to word this without sounding kind of weird or rude, but I think somehow Satan uh, distracts people of the Catholic faith to keep their eyes off God a little bit less. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, it makes sense to me. And yes, short answer is yeah, I think that. I wasn't quite sure how to word that. No, I think that. Um, you know, your 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 eye, if you're a, Rome, a committed Roman Catholic, then you're devoted to Mother Church. And that's the language. Mother Church. And your eternal soul depends on whether or not you are in the good graces of Mother Church. So, 
of necessity, that's going to distract you from the true and living God. So the whole, the whole hierarchy, the whole thing, the whole machinery, all of that, all of the sacraments that, as we saw a few weeks ago, control you from birth to last rites to death. Yeah, that's gonna that's gonna distract you from God, but it's powerful, absolutely powerful. If you believe that this is where the grace of God is found, well, then it has a grip on you. Well, they tell you that, and they tell you that. further. Uh, if you go if you go into a Roman Catholic church, I and mean, I didn't grow up Roman Catholic, I've only been in a Roman Catholic church a handful of times in my entire life. But the first time I was ever in a Roman Catholic church was when I was a teenager in 10th grade. And I had gone for two years to a Baptist high school. And in my third year, which was my 10th grade year, uh, I couldn't get a ride there. So my mom, my dad had passed away, my mom didn't know what to do. She says, uh, I'm looking for another school. I don't want you going to Ecorse High School. So the only other kind of private schools there were were Catholic schools. And Many of the kids on my block went to this Catholic school in Wyandotte, Mount Carmel. So I could get a ride with them. So my mom enrolled me at Mount Carmel. And I go to a Catholic school. Uh, just a quick, just absolutely true story. I'm taking religion class. Religion class. And the religion teacher is asking some questions the first day we have this. Questions like... So, who led the Israelites out of Egypt? Crickets. And I go, well, Moses? And he goes, yeah, Moses. So, who was it that uh, built the ark? Crickets? <laughs> Noah. Yeah. And these kids go, whoa. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. So that's religion class. Now, one day a week, you went to mass. So this is the first time I'm a ten. I'm about tenth grade, about fourteen. I go into this old world Polish Catholic church. But I'm bringing all that up to emphasize the hold it can have on because I remember as a fourteen year old going in there and thinking I'm in the presence of God. Because it's so majestic. And the beauty of the ceilings and the frescoes and all of it was was amazing. So uh, I can see why people you can see why people get caught up. This is the place where God meets with you. And he meets with you in this place as no other place. And the guy who's doing the stuff up front has a power that no one else has. So absolutely it distracts you. From a vital relationship with the, the true and living God. All right, one final story. <coughs> Just you didn't pay for this piece. <laughs> so I've never been in a Catholic church, and I don't know how it goes. And I'm, I, I don't have any friends in this particular class. I have friends from my block, but they weren't in my class. So I'm like by myself. I'm sitting in the in a row by myself, pew. And the whole thing starts, and the priest says, peace be with you. And they go, and also with you. <laughs> and then they say, you know, something else, and then these guys repeat, and I go, what? And I'm looking around for a program, how do these guys know? Well, they just do it blindly, they just do the same thing every time they know how to do it. 
And so I have no idea what to do. And he's going, and then he starts praying. And I'm looking at the other classmates, and they're not standing up, but they're not sitting down. I can't figure out what to do. You'll hear it in a minute, because I'm going, I'm looking around, he's praying, I'm looking, and then I look underneath, and there's this thing. And I start to try to pull the thing out, and I can't get it. And so I yank on it, and it comes down. Bam! <laughs> And in those old churches, man, there's yeah. echoes oh. like that, right? So I'm just hiding back there. When I walked in, I forgot to tell you when I walked in. I'm last in line, we're walking in, and I'm standing, looking to see what they're doing as they go in. Because the line's not just going straight up and get a seat. They're stopping and doing something. And I'm trying to see what it is. And as I get a little closer, I see this little waver and there's some water in it. And they're putting their hand in, and I'm trying to see what they do with it. And they're crossing. <laughs> it turns out they're crossing. So I don't know how to cross. I don't know what to do with it. <laughs> So I get up there, and I put my hand in the water, and I don't know what to do. I've got a wedding, and I look around, and I go, Jim's fault for asking the question. You realize, oh, that makes you Catholic. <laughs> Say what? That makes you Catholic. Does it? I have the holy water on my face. Yeah. And my hand <laughs> on my face. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Within a few months of posting his thesis in Wittenberg, Luther is asked to speak to the monks of his order in Heidelberg, Germany. <coughs> Luther shares his new understanding of scripture and God's grace. His ideas are provocative, and Pope Leo X takes notice. He sends emissaries to placate Luther, but he is unrelenting. The issue quickly moves from indulgences to an even more fundamental and powerful question. Can one theologian's reading of scripture outweigh centuries of church tradition and the Pope's authority? The church firmly answers, no. Catholicism tries to hold both the scripture and, and its tradition in, in a kind of reverence and recognize that, that they need each other. You can't simply have tradition without scripture. And just as you simply, from a Catholic perspective, can't have scripture without some communal context in which that's understood and accepted. When we talk about development of doctrine, it's inseparable from this idea that tradition is a living, organic part of the church. I mean, one could say tradition is the church. Not an institution, but the living of the gospel life. Uh, of our relationship with Christ. And that living is the thing that is the basis for our reading of the scriptures. For Martin Luther, scripture, not tradition, is the ultimate authority. Certainly, Luther did not discard the tradition of the church, and he read the church fathers, and he even read medieval commentaries and listened to them as well. But he says the authority is primarily vested in the Bible itself. And if the tradition contradicts the Bible, then we should put the primacy in the Bible. In June 1519, Luther and theologian Johann Eck publicly debate one another for 18 days in Leipzig, Germany. 
multitudes swarm the event. Eck, who is backed by the Pope, sets out to prove Luther is a heretic in the same vein as Jan Hus, who was burned at the stake for rejecting papal authority a century earlier. Luther is fearless, boldly declaring, a simple layman armed with the scriptures is superior to both Pope and his councils without them. Luther's language is colorful and occasionally foul. He is unapologetic for calling his brothers and sisters in Christ monsters and death goats. Uh, he was an earthy man, as we like to say. And so his language was kind of rough. Luther was really good at using bodily functions to describe his opponents. He would uh, often call them dogs uh, and scoundrels and, and language of that sort. Talked about the captivity of Babylon, and he definitely saw the church as being in captivity. And so for him, he saw this as similar to Jesus's cleansing of the temple. One scholar involved in the debate, Philip Melanchthon, aligns himself with Luther, yet he pleads for a more measured approach. Melanchthon's more inclined to find a way of peace, to find a way of understanding the others, whereas Luther was more interested in proclamation. Melanchthon's moderate style is brushed aside as Luther's views gain momentum around Germany. Pope Leo X takes decisive action. On June 5, 1520, the Pope issues a decree, or papal bull, censuring 41 propositions extracted from Luther's 95 theses. In it, he calls Luther a wild boar invading the Lord's vineyard. The Pope threatens to excommunicate Luther unless he recants his beliefs within 60 days. Not only does Luther refuse to recant, he writes three books lashing out at the papacy. Luther is risking his life. Luther had one of the boldest personalities imaginable. I mean, he wasn't a superhero, but he was pretty close. In his books, Luther tackles one of the church's central beliefs, that the church hierarchy is the means through which ordinary believers access God. God's grace is mediated by the priesthood to the people through the sacraments. That was the official theology. When a man receives the sacrament of holy orders and is ordained a priest, he is given a share in the role of Christ uh, in his capacity as head and bridegroom of the church and can forgive sins sacramentally and uh, celebrate mass and uh, confect the Eucharist, meaning bring about a change of the elements of bread and wine into the body and blood of Christ by the power of Christ alone. Luther argues that baptism makes all Christians priests. So ordained priests have no more access to God's grace than the average layperson. This dispensation of grace is something that belongs to, to every believer, to the body of believers, rather than to the priesthood exclusively. Then Luther addresses the church's sacraments. Catholicism puts great emphasis on the sacraments because the sacraments are the ordinary means of receiving God's sanctifying and merciful grace. Each sacrament has form, which means the, the idea or the grace or the spirituality which is being communicated. But they also have manner. 
So baptism is water. Um, the forgiveness of sins through the imposition of hands. The Eucharist with the elements of bread and wine, etc. The idea is they appeal to the whole person. Not just to the spirit, but to the body as well. In these sacraments, it's God who's working the work. My participation in it is, is obviously critical, but it's God who's doing the work. It's not my belief in it that does the work. The church observes seven sacraments. Baptism, confirmation, Eucharist, penance, anointing of the sick, holy orders, and matrimony. sacramental theology is a reflection or a further instantiation of our anthropology, the way we understand the human person. Luther argues that only two of these seven sacraments are scriptural, the Eucharist and baptism. But his challenge to the church doesn't stop there. He also tells Christians they are free from fear of God's judgment. Christ has taken humanity's sin on himself and imputed his perfect righteousness. Therefore, one can obey out of love, not fear of punishment. Luther's defiance culminates on December the 10th, 1520, when he burns Pope Leo X's papal bull in a festive bonfire attended by faculty and students at the University of Wittenberg. What started as a refutation of a money-raising scheme has turned into a full-fledged movement against core teachings of the church. So one way of thinking about the Reformation is it's a, it's a church split caused by a building project gone bad. Pope Leo X is not amused. He promptly excommunicates Luther from the church. Uh, some people ask the question whether or not uh, Luther was kicked out of the church or whether he left the church. Well, the answer is both. Because Luther made that situation so impossible for the medieval church that they had to excommunicate him. So he really didn't give them any choice. The Pope also asks the head of the Holy Roman Empire, Charles V, to execute Luther as a heretic. The church needs the state's support, but it won't be easy to obtain. The political tides are changing and working in Luther's favor. People were obsessed about the threat of the Ottoman Turks moving into Europe, coming into as far as Vienna, and that all of Europe would be overrun by Islamic armies. That played a key role, I think, in the Reformation because the Emperor, Charles V, had to make a lot of compromises with the princes in order to get their support to fight the Turks. And part of those compromises included letting them practice Lutheranism. Large parts of Germany now support the brave monk Martin Luther, and the church leadership is out of step with the times. The way to deal with a huge crisis in the church naturally would have been to convene a general council and see what is the consensus in the church. Um, I think it is one of the great mistakes of the popes at the time that they did not call for a general council as a reaction to Luther's theology. Under pressure, Emperor Charles V invites Luther to the Diet, or Assembly, of Vannes in April 1521. He positions it as an opportunity for Luther to present his claims. He is called to appear before the emperor, and all 
crown heads of the German Empire. So this is this is the equivalent of a full UN assembly or Congress combined. And he appears in person, and uh, they he's at a table with a pile of various pamphlets and books. And the prosecutor says to him, from the emperor and everybody else, Dr. Luther, do you acknowledge having written these works, and do you hereby abjure them? Do you reject them? Luther begs for another day to compose his response. The next day, in the face of the real danger of execution, Luther stands his ground. He essentially says, unless I am convinced by Holy Scripture otherwise, I stand by these words. Here I stand. I can do no other. God help me. Now, whether he said those actual words or not, this was an incredibly brave moment for Luther. He stood in defiance of all the assembled secular heads of the German Empire, and he rejected the pressure. It definitely set a precedent in which one's individual sense of the faith became some kind of normative determiner for how one receives the faith and lives it out in a, in a community of faith. In spite of Germany's widespread support of Luther, the emperor decrees him a notorious heretic who must be stopped. He issues an edict calling Luther a criminal who has committed high treason and demands his capture, along with that of his followers. Luther is a marked man. He is saved, however, when his prince, Elector Frederick the Wise, has armed horsemen abduct Luther on his return trip to Wittenberg. The prince conceals Luther in one of his castles in Wartburg, Germany. Why did Frederick the Wise put his life at risk, his, his throne at risk, to support Luther? Maybe it was some sort of social contract between the ruler and his people. Some people think that may have had something to do with it. Luther remains there for the next 10 months. Though he despises his enforced solitude, Luther uses the time to translate the New Testament from Greek into German, an act of both defiance and courage. Now, in past days, 100 years earlier, with somebody like John Huss, that would have ended not only in his excommunication, but being burned as a heretic. In December 1521, Pope Leo X falls ill and dies before he can be administered last rites. In his seven-year reign, he has spent the equivalent of $56 million. The papal coffers are so empty that Leo's coffin has to be lit by half-burned candles borrowed from another funeral. Within months, Luther comes out of hiding and returns to Wittenberg. His safety, however, is not assured. So Luther lived consciously, mindful that every day could be his last. So he lived with that every day. In spite of the danger, Luther presses forward. New leaders are springing up around him to fan the flames of reform. But Luther won't always be pleased with how they carry the torch.
So it's a grade B miracle that Luther lived a natural life, died a natural death. That he was never burned at the stake. He was protected by uh, some of the magistrates in uh, Germany. When it says at the end there that he may not like what his followers do, and those who have taken a, a liking to his teachings, it's speaking of what I have at the bottom of page 22. Because the Reformation spread from Germany to places like Switzerland. And the leader, the initial leader of the Reformation in Switzerland, bottom of page 22, was Ulrich Zwingli. Zwingli believed much of what Luther did. And so he, Zwingli, was leaving the Catholic Church. But he had some disagreements with Luther. And the largest of those doctrinal disagreements was related to communion, the Lord's table. They were persuaded, the two of them, to meet finally, you see at the top of page 23, at Marburg Castle, to bring it together. The hope was to have a unified Protestant movement. And they came together, and very quickly, they agreed on 14 doctrinal positions out of 15. And the one they could not agree on was the Lord's table, communion. Now, what was the difference? You see at the top there, although Luther attacked the medieval Catholic doctrine of transubstantiation, which holds that the bread and the wine are changed into the very body and blood of Christ. He attacked that, but he continued to maintain that the body and blood are present, quote, in and under the bread and the wine, a view called consubstantiation. But Zwingli said the Lord's Supper was essentially a sacred feast at which Christ's death was commemorated and contemplated in faith. Christ is present not physically, but spiritually, in the hearts of the believers only. So Luther tried to find a mediating position. From his Roman Catholic roots and transubstantiation, which he believed was blasphemous, but he was so attached to that that he came up with consubstantiation. Now I confess to you that I can't I can't explain to you what consubstantiation is. I mean, it is what it says here, that the body and blood of Christ are present in and under the bread and the wine. Con means with. So substance, the substance of the physical Christ is con, with the elements when you receive them. Transubstantiation, trans means changed. So transubstantiation means the substance of the bread and the wine is changed. It's no longer bread and wine. It becomes literally the body and blood of Christ. Yes? That's what I was taught. And then the, the consubstantiation is that Christ is present spiritually, but there's not the physical change. Yeah, it doesn't change. The bread doesn't change, but, but he's still... It's, it's even more than spiritually. Because Calvin believed that, he was, that Christ is present spiritually. And of course, we believe Christ is present, like Zwingli says here, in the hearts of believers... But Luther was trying to find some way that Christ is attached to the elements without it being transubstantiation. So he came up with this. For me, biblically, it doesn't work. 
For Spengley, it didn't work. Spengley's position is actually the position that Baptists hold, a memorial view of the death of Christ, that we're memorializing, we're remembering, Jesus' words were, uh, do this in remembrance of me. So it's a memorial. We're remembering something that's already happened. We're not reenacting it. We're not doing it again. So Zwingli was one, and they could not come together. So the Swiss Reformation and the German Reformation went on separately. Now, after, uh, or, or uh, simultaneous, I should say, with Zwingli for part of his ministry is John Calvin. And John Calvin uh, becomes the pastor in Geneva, Switzerland. John Knox, whose name is down at the bottom of page 23, is part of the English Reformation. But Knox was a contemporary of Calvin. He came and visited Geneva, having heard of Calvin. He wanted to meet Calvin. He wanted to see Geneva. And he wrote, The city is, quote, the most perfect school of Christ that ever was in the earth since the days of the apostles. So Calvin had created a very impressive organization in Geneva. An academy to train students, to train theologians. John Calvin, absolutely brilliant dude. Uh, He wrote the Institutes of the Christian Religion. You see it listed there. That's his magnum opus. That's his, his great body of work. And it's just magisterial in its content. And uh, if you ever, I would encourage you to read it and just plow your way through it. But it's uh, it's it's uh, tremendous in its insight and in its scope. It covers everything: a biblical worldview. Tulip, T-U-L-I-P, is attributed to Calvin or Calvinism. That's an acronym for five major points that Calvin taught regarding salvation. I'll give you what the letters stand for, but let me just say that Calvin didn't actually develop TULIP himself. He taught the things that TULIP represents, these five letters represent, but he never systematized it into a cute formula like that. the way Tulip actually developed was there were people opposed to what Calvin taught. And they developed five points in opposition to the teachings of Calvin. And so his, these five points are actually, uh, were actually originated with opponents of, of Calvin. So this is the positive formulation of these five points. His, his opponents had a negative formulation. We don't believe these five things was the idea. So what does TULIP stand for? The T stands for total depravity. Total depravity. The entire person is sinful. Mind, will, and emotion. Every part of the individual is tainted by by sin. Mind, will, and emotion, meaning the will is in bondage to sin. The will is the part of you, part of me that chooses. So this is foundational. It's very important. If the will cannot choose good, then how will anyone ever choose Christ? 
So that's the dilemma. If total depravity is true, and I say it is, biblically, then the will is unable to ever choose good. Now that may sound like a Bible verse to you. Like Romans 3.12. There is no one good, not even one. In fact, it says there is no one who does good, not even one. There is no one righteous, not even one. Romans 3. So, total depravity, the will is in bondage to sin. So just think about that question. If the will is in bondage and cannot then therefore choose good, how will anyone ever choose Christ? So the next point is the you, unconditional election. Election, as the word suggests, means a choosing. So someone is choosing. The totally depraved person is not the person doing the choosing. Unconditional election means God elects, God chooses. And God does so without a condition. That is, the individual doesn't meet some condition and then God says, all right, now I'll choose you. Rather, he chooses you without you ever meeting any condition. And that, again, is related to the first thing. Because you can. So if there's going to be any choosing by God, if total depravity is true, it follows it's going to have to be unconditional because you and I are unable to meet any of those conditions. Total depravity, unconditional election. The L stands for limited atonement. Limited atonement. So the idea there is Christ dies on the cross, but for whom does Christ die? Now, there's some debate about what Calvin actually taught about this. Remember, these were not Calvin's points. Followers later put these together in response to people who opposed him. There are actually statements of Calvin where it sounds like he believes in an unlimited atonement. That is, Christ died for everyone. So, sometimes you'll hear people say, I'm a five-point Calvinist. A five-point Calvinist means they believe all five of these. Sometimes people say I'm a four. If someone says I'm a four-point Calvinist, the L is the one they don't believe. Sometimes people will say, you know, there's some Bible verses that say this and some that say that, so I'm a a (laughs) four-and-a-half-point Calvinist. The I stands for irresistible grace. Irresistible grace. That God does a work on the heart of the individual so that the sinful, rebellious heart that will naturally resist God no longer resists Him. God changes you. You're regenerated. You're born again. So that now what you naturally would do, namely resist, you no longer do. You accept now. If it's resistible, guess how many people will resist it? That would be everybody. So these all follow, in my mind, they all follow, other than the L, but they follow from the T, total depravity. And then the last one is perseverance of the saints. Perseverance of the saints. That God has started this work 
And God, of course, had to start this work because the totally depraved sinner can't initiate it. So God has to initiate it. God initiated it in eternity past when he chose what he was going to do. And then in time, he does this work upon the individual when they hear the gospel. And they're regenerated and they're born again and then they believe. But God continues that work and completes that work. That's what the P is. So the whole system is, all. you notice it's all pretty God-centered? God starts it. God does it. God finishes it. Perseverance means those then whom God has chosen will persevere in the faith. God will see them through. A Philippians 1.6 He who has begun a good work in you will bring it to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. So that's Calvinism as it relates to salvation. And then on the Lord's Supper, Calvin did not believe in consubstantiation. He certainly did not believe in transubstantiation. Uh, He wrote of Christ being spiritually present with the elements. I can deal with that. Uh, but So he didn't take the Luther's view. He certainly didn't take the Roman Catholic view. So that's the Swiss Reformation. Then you have the English Reformation. The Reformation goes to England. Starting with King Henry VIII. How so? Karen says this, Because it was apparent that the Pope would not grant him a divorce, Henry decided to get it through the English clergy who would be coerced into granting it by Parliament. Thus, the Reformation was initiated in England by the lay authority of the ruler and the Parliament. The Reformation Parliament ended papal control. So, that's the deal. The Reformation started in England because King Henry wanted a divorce. And the Pope wouldn't give it, so he says, we'll start our own church. That started the church of what then? England. Church of England. The Church of England. The or the Anglican Church. So you'll hear these terms and you think they're different things. The Church of England and the Anglican Church are the same thing. The American version of the Church of England is the Episcopalian Church. So as we go through this now, you'll see all of these groups that come out of this later, hopefully you'll be able to get your mind around at least the largest of them in the weeks to the weeks to come. So the Church of England, the Anglican Church, the Episcopalian Church starts because King Henry wants a divorce. Henry freed the church from the papacy and he put it under royal control as a national church. To this day, to this day, the Queen of England, if you ever look at the crown of the Queen of England, it has a cross on the top of it. So, uh, you know, she's the head of the church, of, of the state, but she also has a religious, at least symbolic role uh, to play as well. Was there any other reformation in the Church of England, or is it just a Catholic church where the king could divorce? No, there were people. So your question is, 
you know, so did anybody care about some more substantive stuff <laughs> other than the king getting a divorce? Yes. And in fact, they're listed next. Because you have the you have the Puritans and the Separatists. And these were people who believed in real reform of the church. That's what they cared about. And the Puritans are so named because the Church of England was simply, in their minds, the Roman Catholic Church without the Pope. So they're looking for real reformation or a purification of the church, thus the name Puritans. Now, in 1630, the year 1630, some of those Puritans are going to get on a boat and come over to America. 1630. But 10 years prior to that, in 1620, another group from England is going to get on a boat and come over, and they are separatists. So you have the Puritans and you have the Pilgrims. The Pilgrims were separatists. The Pilgrims believed in a church separate from the state. So they were Puritans who believed in the separation of church and state. The Puritans that were non-separatists were happy to have the church and the state wedded together. But both came over to America. So you're going to see as we move forward now how all this stuff we've been talking about then starts to affect you and me. By the time we get done, you'll see that Community Bible Church actually fits into this thing way down, way down the road. In England, as all of this is going on, you have the King James Bible, commissioned by King James of England. And it is a monumental task, and there are world-renowned scholars who work on it to put the Bible into the English language. So it was a tremendous feat. Now you have the Bible in the English language and then English coming over to America and then, of course, the history of America and the King James Bible comes comes with it as well. Now, the King James Bible, 1611. I don't know if you've ever seen a 1611 King James Bible, but if you ever have... It will surprise you that you literally cannot read it. It's in English, but it's in Old English, which is so old, it's virtually a different language. So, if you've ever met somebody who says there's a, they are a King James-only person, or if you've ever met someone who says, in fact, they will be specific, KJV, King James Version, KJV 1611, I've seen people with hats, bumper stickers, KJV 1611. This is clearly a person who's never seen a 1611 King James. The King James that we have now is not the King James 1611. It's been revised multiple times and updated multiple times. So there are people who say that and they, not to be unkind, they just don't know what they're talking about. Have any of you here taken Dr. Combs' class on how we got our Bible? Anybody been able to take that? His class, Dr. Combs, you took it? Mm-hmm. How we got our Bible. Only one person has taken it? All right, we've got a few other All right, a few other people took it. Well, the reason I'm asking is, man, we probably need to offer that again. Because that is, I'm telling you, that is, isn't that a great class? 
And Dr. Combs is an expert on a lot of stuff. You know, I go to coffee with him on Mondays. You know, the guy knows everything. <laughs> Not just he thinks he knows everything. He knows everything. Okay? But he does this class uh, on how we got our Bible. And he's an expert on manuscript evidence and all that stuff. It's a tremendous class. So we've offered it a couple times. We'll offer it again. But as he goes through that, he shows all of this about the uh, King James Bible. He did, Dr. Combs did years ago, a tour for us, for our church, in Ann Arbor at the University of Michigan Library. Where? Did you go to that? They had the fifth, they have the fifth largest collection of New Testament manuscripts in the world in Ann Arbor. And Dr. Combs led a group of us through that. One of the fragments that they have under glass there is a piece of Ephesians 1. Ephesians chapter 1 in Greek. And it's it's dated at as early as 85 AD. This fragment. And you, and you look at that, and it's exactly what you have in your English Bible, translated. It's exactly what you have. It's nearly 2,000 years old. Sir? Is that the papyri? Or? Yeah, it's written on papyrus. It's a fragment, though. And they're in the, of Ephesians 1. So you've got all these fragments and full manuscripts. There are 5,000 of them of the New Testament. The New Testament is the most well-attested ancient document in the world with all of the manuscript evidence that's available for it. So the King James Bible helped spread the Reformation. And then John Knox is in Scotland. And John Knox started Presbyterianism. Presbyterianism. So he believes the doctrines of the Reformation, but his big contribution, Knox's, was the organization of the church. So I, I mentioned the Church of England Anglican Episcopal. What's Episcopal mean? Uh, it's from a Greek word in the New Testament, episkopos, which in the King James Version is translated bishop or overseer. The Episcopalian Church is so named for the way it's organized, that you have a chief, a head of the church, a monarch, a bishop. In the Church of England, it's not the Pope, of course, it is the Archbishop of, anybody know? Canterbury. Archbishop of Canterbury is the head of the Church of England, the Anglican Church. So he's the bishop, he's the overseer, he's the head bishop. So Episcopalian is referring to how it's organized. Presbyterian is the same idea that it's it's referring to how it's organized. And the Presbyterian church is organized by presbyters. And that comes from a New Testament Greek word, presbyteros, which is translated elder in the New Testament. So the Presbyterian church is organized under elders or presbyters, thus the name Presbyterian. And what you've got are elders within a local church, but we've got that. We have elders in this church. I'm an elder. Pastor Rich is an elder. Pastor Larry is an elder. We have elders in our church. What we don't have are elders outside of the church. So that's a main difference between the way our church is organized, the way we think the church biblically is supposed to be organized, and how Knox organized the Presbyterian church. 
you have a you have a session within the church, but you also have a, a session outside of the church, or a, a presbytery, a group of elders that are outside of it. So it's not local church autonomy. Each church is not self-governing. You have someone's above it. All right. So that's English Reformation, German Reformation, and um, uh, which one am I missing? Swiss. Swiss. Thank, thank you. Page 24, the Counter-Reformation. So a number of things happened uh, to counter the Reformation within Roman Catholicism. They see all of this happening, and they do a number of things. One is uh, they issue a list of prohibited or forbidden books. So here are books that Roman Catholics are not to read. Of course they're not to read Luther's works. Believe it or not, there were versions of the Bible that were put on the list of forbidden books as well. Yeah, that'll mess you up reading the Bible. So they issued a list of books Roman Catholics are not supposed to read. The Society of Jesus began, otherwise known as the Jesuits. And the Jesuits did the Lord's work, I have that in quotes, but the Lord's work, uh, by doing all kinds of things on behalf of the hierarchy of the church, spying out heretics, turning them in, those kinds of things. The Inquisition was... Heretics brought before a panel to inquire about their beliefs and then to mete out punishment to those who were found to be heretical. But the most important thing that happened in the Counter-Reformation was the Council of Trent. The Council of Trent. And the Council of Trent issued volumes of condemnations against Protestants. And those condemnations, this is important, those condemnations are still in effect to this very day. Now, some of you may have perhaps heard of Vatican II in the 60s. This was an ecumenical council of the Roman Catholic Church in the 1960s, Vatican II. Vatican II made some major changes to the Roman Catholic Church, including including things like the Mass no longer has to be said exclusively in Latin. It referred to it referred to Protestants as quote separated brethren. So people go, hey, they're coming around, they're recognizing us. The problem is the Catholic Church has a real a real conundrum. Because it says of itself the church is infallible. Therefore the church cannot change. These pronouncements from the Council of Trent then are valid according to Roman Catholicism forever. And the Council of Trent is listed in Vatican II's documents as one of the ecumenical valid councils of the Roman Catholic Church. Further, in the 1994 Catechism of the Catholic Church, the Council of Trent is quoted over and over again. So this is not something that just happened 500 years ago. It's valid today within Roman Catholicism, and the condemnations are still valid today. So as I talk about Roman Catholicism, as I will more as we go forward, and what it teaches, 
Don't get the idea that it's just me being me. Roman Catholicism has condemned me to eternal damnation because I believe in salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, because of Christ alone, based upon the authority of the Scriptures alone. Okay? We'll continue that with page 25 next week.